welcome to Radio Drama Revival, the show dedicated to stories told through the medium of sound, showcasing the diversity and vitality of modern audio theater. Here, your news, reviews, discussion, and of course, stories. I am your host, Fred. That great theme music is by Roger Gregg of Crazy Dog Audio Theater. And today we finish our focus on the Beyond 2000 science fiction anthology produced by the venerable Yuri Rosovsky, a decorated audio dramaturge who continues to produce brilliant work to this day, including the Audi Award-winning and Grammy-nominated Maltese Falcon, a spectacular piece of noir audio drama I highly recommend you listen to, but more on that in a moment. Uh, we've got two pieces to start off the show today, Collector's Fever and Miles to Go Before I Sleep, each clock in less than 10 minutes apiece. So stay tuned for those two. Um, afterwards, we'll have an interview with the creator, Yuri Rosovsky, when he does talk about uh, some of his award-winning noir fiction work, as well as a piece which I know will win some awards called uh, St. Joan. And a new piece, uh, Zorro rendition he's doing, a uh, guy who's up to a lot of interesting pieces uh, let's hear what he did um, back in the 80s with Beyond 2000. Let's get listening to Collector's Fever. Excuse me? Excuse me? What? What are, you, what are you doing there, human? It's, it's a long story. Just... Oh, good. I like long stories. Uh, sit down and talk. Uh-huh. Uh, oh. Uh, well, uh, okay. Oh, no, no, not on me. Oh, sorry, <laughs> sorry, sorry. Well, it's all because of my uncle, the fabulously wealthy... Stop, and, uh, stop. Hmm? What does wealthy mean? Like, rich. Oh, oh. And rich? Uh, lots of money. Ah. What's money? Look, you want to hear the story or don't you? Yes, yes, but I'd like to understand it, too. Oh, very sorry, Rock. I'm afraid I don't understand it myself. Uh, the name is Stone. Okay. Stone. Thank you. And my uncle, who is a very important man, mm-hmm. was supposed to send me to the Space Academy. Ah. But he didn't. No. He decided a liberal education was a better thing, so he sent me to his old spinster alma mater to major in non-human humanities. And uh, Are you with me so far? Uh, no. But understanding is not necessarily an adjunct to appreciation. Well, that's what I say. Now, I'll never understand Uncle Sidney, but I appreciate his outrageous tastes, his magpie instinct, and his gross meddling in other people's affairs. I appreciate them till I'm sick to the stomach. (laughs) There's nothing else I can do. He's a carnivorous old family monument, fond of having his own way. Uh Unfortunately, he also has all the money in the family, so it follows like a... after a... that he always does... Get his own way. This this money must be pretty important stuff. Oh, important enough to send me across 10,000 light years to an unnamed world, which, incidentally, I've just named Dung Hill. Dung? Ugh. You know. Uh, oh, 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 the low-flying zat is a heavy eater, yeah. which accounts for the uh, low-flying... Yeah, like, yes, yeah, I, I've noted that That is moss, though, isn't it? Oh, of course. Good, good. Then crating you will be less of a problem. What's crating? Uh, it means to put something in a box, uh, take it somewhere else. Like moving around? Yeah. Well, what are you planning on crating? Yourself, Stone. I've never been the rolling sort. Look, Stone, my uncle is a rock collector. See, you, your neighbors, uh, the only species of intelligent mineral in the galaxy. You're also the largest specimen I've spotted so far. So, uh, do you follow me? Yes, but I don't want to. Well, why not? 
You'd be lord of his rock collection. So? Sort of a one-eyed man in the kingdom of the blind, if I may venture an inappropriate metaphor. Oh, please don't do that, whatever it is. It sounds awful. Tell me. How did your uncle hear of our world? Ooh, one of my instructors read about this place in an old space log. Now, he was an old space log collector. And the log had belonged to a Captain Fairhill, who landed here several centuries ago and held lengthy discourse with uh, your people. Good old foul-weather Fairhill! How is he these days? Ooh, Give him my well, regards. he's dead. What? Dead. What's dead? Caput, uh, Bluey, gone. Uh, oh, uh, 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 Diebel. Oh, my! Mm. When did it happen? I, I trust it was a, an aesthetic occurrence of major import. I really couldn't say, but I passed the information on to my uncle who decided to collect you. That's why I'm here. He sent me. Really? Mm -hmm. Well, as much as I appreciate the compliment, <clears throat> I can't accompany you. It's almost Diebel time. I know. I read all about Diebeling in the Fair Hill log before I showed it to Uncle Sidney. I tore those pages out. I want him to be around when you do it. Then I can inherit his money and console myself in all manner of expensive ways for never having gone to the Space Academy. First, I'll become an alcoholic. Then I'll take up winching. And, um, I better do it the other way around. But I want to deeble here, among the things I've become attached to. This is a crowbar. Huh? I'm going to unattach you. If you try it... I'll deeble right now! You can't! Who says? I measured your mass before we struck up this conversation. <clears throat> it will take at least eight months under Earth conditions for you to reach deebling proportions. Okay, now I was bluffing! But have you no compassion? I've rested here for centuries, ever since I was a small pebble, as did my fathers before me. Oh, boy. I've added so carefully to my atom collection, building up the finest molecular structure in the neighborhood. And now, <laughs> to be snatched away right before deebling time, it's, it's, it's quite unrock of you. No, it's not that bad. I promise you'll collect the finest earth atoms available. You'll go to places no other stone has ever been before. Small consolation. I want my neighbors to see. I'm afraid that's out of the question. You are a very cruel human. I hope you're around when I deeble. I intend to be far away and on the eve of prodigious debaucheries when that occurs. Now, oh, just, wait, no, 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 please. Oh, oh, oh that was easy. <laughs> well... Forgot Dunghill's got subby gravity. Well, here oh. we go! Roll, roll, roll no, stone. please, can't we talk this over? Is there no pity in your heart? No How do you like that? Humans. Didn't much care for that fair hill person either. Oh, don't you worry. That human will get what's coming to him. What do you mean? Did you see his spacecraft? Well, just a glimpse while it was landing. <laughs> kind of flimsy, didn't you think? Well, impressed me as sporty. Flimsy. I'd guess there's not much shielding. So? Ah, 
A nuclear-powered craft without the proper shielding is going to emit numerous subatomic particles when in flight, especially at takeoff. Uh -huh. well, such emissions could easily be gathered and assimilated by a reasonably sentient mineral who could thus, in seconds, uh -huh. add enough bulk to enable a full-scale... And that was Collector's Fever from the NPR series Beyond 2000, and now another from that series, Miles to Go Before I Sleep. Murdoch, Robert S. Logbook entry, 0600 hours, January 29th, 2127. Starship Omega proceeding on schedule. Star course, 89-J-4. Anticipated Earth touchdown, December 30th, 2127. All systems are functioning perfectly, except, of course, my own body. Onboard diagnostics indicate degeneration increasing more rapidly than anticipated. I may have only a few terrestrial days before giving out entirely. I am, therefore, stepping up the android's orientation, which I hope to complete before the sleep alarm today. End logbook entry. Android, come in here. You called for me, sir? Yes. Approach. Sit down. Identify yourself. I am Robert Spencer Murdoch, Rocket Man, Star Class. I am 45 years of age and have been in space for more than half my lifetime. What is your mission? I am presently bound for planet Earth to visit my parents. As I promised them I would, I am going home. Perfect. Thank you, sir. But you must say these things with more eagerness, more, more love. Yes, sir. Now, do you know who I am? Yes, sir, you are Robert Spencer Murdoch, Rocket Man, Star Class. You are 45 years of age and have been in space for more than half your lifetime. Not anymore. Sir, there can be only one Bob Murdoch from now on. You. Do you understand? No, sir. You and I are identical. Identical in every way. 
We look alike. We sound alike. We, we act alike. My memories have been programmed into you. I hope that I've invested you during this journey with the love I feel for my family. Only an expert medical examination could reveal that you are artificial. In only one thing do we differ. I am dying. You are not. Dying, sir? Uh, running down. Becoming obsolete. Malfunctioning. I will not last this journey. I am sorry to hear that, sir. <laughs> Can't be helped. When I die, when my bio-systems finally give out, what are you to do? I am to jettison your remains into space and take over your identity. That is correct. What is your mission? When I arrive on Earth, I am to proceed to the appointed rendezvous with your parents. Your parents now? My parents. From your messages, they know that I cannot stay more than two weeks. I must then return to space. But for those two weeks... I will be their son. You are their son. Back from the stars. I will live with them, eat with them, sleep in the back room of the house in my old room. I will talk of the far-off place I have visited, of other worlds, of the many adventures of a rocket man. I will also ask about my old friends, my neighbors, my family. And you will love them. You will love your parents. And you will show this love in every way and at all times while you are with them. Yes, sir. You will keep my promise for me, my promise to return. The promise? I can't keep myself. Yes, sir. And you will be everything they hoped you would be. You will make them proud of you. I look forward to it, sir. It is extremely important. It is the only reason for your existence. They are old, and space is vast. This is the last time they will see you. You must not disappoint them. I will try very hard, sir. They are the finest people in the universe. You have two weeks to make them happy. Two weeks. I will not fail in my mission, sir. I know you won't, Murdoch. Anything else, sir? Yes, uh, would you... Would you take over the controls? I am... I'm going to lie down. I feel very ill. And Murdoch... Yes, sir. If I don't rise again, I know what to do. Thank you, Murdoch. Thank you very much. What a perfect homecoming. Yeah, yeah. Even the weather held out. Well, the whole town's here. Mm, they sure are. Look. You know, I'm so happy for the Murdochs. Oh, me too. I hope they're looking down from heaven and seeing what a fine man their boy Bobby has yeah. turned into. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, shame about the accident. Ah, oh, tragic. Well, they ought to be here. Well, 
but it shows just what kind of people they were. Oh, yeah. You know, making provision like they did. Mm -hmm. Having mm -hmm. the androids made just in case. Well, they didn't want to disappoint their one and only son. Of course not. They promised to meet him, and they've kept their promise. Well, the Murdochs were those kind of people. Thoughtful. Very thoughtful. Loving. Extremely loving. Even in death. Even in death. He's so happy. Look at him. I know. If the Murdochs were alive, I'm sure they'd be very, very proud. He looks yeah. terrific. Well, so do they. I mean, the androids. Yeah. Perfect duplicates. Absolutely perfect. And they ought to be. The Murdochs spared no expense. Mm. You think he'll catch on? Bobby? Nah. He's too happy. No one in the town would ever tell, I'm sure. No, 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 no. He'll never know. That was Miles to Go Before I Sleep from the Beyond 2000 series produced by Yuri Rosovsky. I actually had a chance to talk to Yuri, a.k.a. Ella Fiendo, as he's called. Talked to him about his work then and now and uh, what it's like to win a bunch of awards and uh, what still draws him to the audio art form. So it's uh, great stuff, and I hope you enjoy. All right, so welcome to Radio Drama Revival. Uh, my guest today hardly needs an introduction, but it's a, kind of a standard thing, so I'll give it a go anyways. Yuri Rosovsky, he's been producing radio theater for going on 40 years now. His Hollywood Theater of the Year productions received numerous nominations and awards. Um, they've been heard on NPR, uh, distributed by Blackstone Audiobooks, a lot of this stuff, just uh, really top-notch productions. And one of his most recent, the audio dramatization of Dashiell Hammett's The Maltese Falcon, was nominated for a Grammy, received several Audi nominations, as well as a 2010 Audi Award for the Best Audiobook Dramatization. Um, he's also the author of The Well-Tempered Audio Dramatist, an invaluable research, which I, for one, at least took for heart as I try to figure out how to produce this stuff. So um, a wonderful... Uh, audio dramaturge uh, Yuri, uh, honored to have you on Radio Drama Revival. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, so let, I'll talk about what um, what just happened. Uh, the audio awards. Um, you, I, I understand you walked away with. First off, you had tons of nominations, but actually got two awards for your productions this year. Yeah, I had five nominations and uh, three alone just for Maltese Falcon. And Maltese Falcon won for best. Uh, adaptation from one medium to another and the other award winner was black mask audio magazine which won as best anthology and so talk about uh th those two productions a little bit they're both kind of in the the noir uh genre whereas uh, a lot of your stuff is well you, you've, you've done you've done all, all, all sorts of different things but so so talk about this uh this foray into the noir stuff well this is interesting. Uh, it so happens that about uh, 10, 15 years ago, I was trying to put together a series on the history of noir fiction, of, of the, the American detective story. Uh, I was uh, going to apply for a grant. And I came across the guy who owns now all the rights to the old Black Mask stories. It never came off. But then, just a few years ago, I was up visiting my publisher, Blackstone, 
and Grover Gardner, who's now uh, one of the, the muckety-mucks there and one of the better uh, audiobook narrators alive today, asked me if I knew anything about the, the Black Mask stories and how would he get a hold of the right? And so this was serendipity because uh, I knew how. And he wanted me to then dramatize an anthology of these stories. So I contacted my, my, uh, my guy, his name is Keith Allen Deutsch, and he was keen to, for this project. But in the course of which, we also got involved with uh, the people that own the rights to Dashiell Hammett stuff. And Keith, we were going to do something in uh, New York production, uh, a live uh, adaptation of one of the Sam Spade short stories. So as a result of that project, he was able to get his hands on the rights to the Maltese Falcon. And it turns out that the Maltese Falcon is the favorite novel of my publisher. So he jumped at it. When you, when you go about uh, contemplating uh, adapting something like the Maltese Falcon, which has, uh, of course, such a famous film adaptation, what, you know, as a, as a dramatist, what, what goes through your mind? What was the process like? Well, it was, what can I do that they couldn't do in the movie that would make this thing valuable in and of itself? And that is that I could put more of Dashiell Hammett into it than they could in the film. The film had to be a commercial length. I have no restrictions on how long my audio version has to be. I don't have to uh, deal with the Hayes office the way... Uh, Warner Brothers did with the film. Uh, so I did, can uncensor it. You know, there's a scene where he strips Bridget O'Shaughnessy naked in order to make sure she's not hiding something. Uh, pretty, and they, that just went out the window uh, in, in the film, plus a lot of other uh, of the more uh, turgid moments, sexual moments. Yeah, and, and so talk about the, the casting process. Um, obviously, having been working in audio for as long as you have, I'm sure you just know lots of great uh, audio audio voiceover people. Uh, but, but talk about taking on a project of this where people may you know, be familiar with the voices or, or sounds. Um, how, how did you, you know, pick out the, the voices for um, the Maltese Falcon? Well, for the uh, smaller parts... It was easy. But when it came to the three leads, the fat man, Bridget O'Shaughnessy, and Spade, that took some time. It, uh, the fat man didn't. The first guy I thought of for doing it would be was Ed, Edward Herman, uh, an actor I've admired for thousands of years. And... I mentioned it to his agent, and he jumped on it. This was something he really wanted to do. He wanted to do radio plays, and he wanted to do this role. So this was this was very encouraging. And my uh, casting director knew that uh, 
Susanoe was uh, amenable to being approached for these kinds of projects. She had never done audio drama, and in any kind of visual medium, she would never be able to do this part. But it doesn't mean it. But her ethnicity means nothing on radio. So, uh, and this would give her an opportunity to stretch. So she jumped. She jumped at it too. But I had a hell of a time finding a spade. I was looking all up and down the place, except for one obvious place. I, I didn't look at all until my engineer said, you know, I'm friendly with Michael Madsen's mother. And I said, of course. All the, the guy just would have to uh, just say the lines straight without any interpret, and he'll sound just like Sam Spade. The guy has a Sam Spade voice. He's got it. He's got that tough growl. So the guy approached the mother. The mother went to Madsen. Madsen, who's always broke, uh, jumped at it just for the the dough, and uh, was willing to put in the time. And it was a five day recording so, session. I, I, and I, I think I'm, I'm, you know, agreed with with all these awards. You know, the the, the final product um, stood up to that. You know, and uh, you, you put all this effort. You get a great cast. You go, you know, to the text with respect and and to do something new with it. And it seems to have been uh, really quite well received. Yes, it was. There's one other aspect to this that that has nothing to do. Has only partially to do with the cast. It was very important for Falcon. Somehow, sonically, you have to give a sense of the atmosphere and the time. This takes place in the late 20s. And it's San Francisco, and it's, and it's noir. And that's part, you partly helped by being able to use some of the Hammett uh, narration. But in the style of the acting, it has to be appropriate. The sound, uh, at the sound atmosphere has to be something that uh, contributes to the, the to the general atmosphere of the thing, the, the noir values of the thing, With the music does too. So the music was was rather period in in sound, and the mix had to somehow give the flavor of a of a noir novel set in this uh, foggy, damp city. Yeah, no, I, I definitely uh, felt. Uh there's something very, very, very raw quality about the sound. You know, there's some, some, you know, you can make things sound so slick and so very lavishly produced, but there's a very, very gritty, raw feeling that was, you know, really present throughout the recording. Yeah. Well, you know, as you've read uh, the well-tempered audio dramatist, so you know that my philosophy is less is more, and that what you don't put in, to to a play is uh, more important than what is there, so it's important to keep things lean, if only to keep maintain the audience's focus on the important stuff. 
in, in light of that, then uh, when it comes to you artistically, you know, have you have been doing this for for many years, and you, I would assume, have reasonably a good reign of, of what you can pick for for new projects. So how how do you you, you pick it out? I, I heard one of your most recent ones, um, Saint Joan, uh, was a, a Joan, Joan of Arc tale, which is you know 180 degrees from 1920s San Francisco. So you know wh- wh- how how do you go about that? This is let me just before answering it, let me just met. Now that you brought it up, the uh, the amount of work you can do and the variety of the work you can do as audio drama is amazing. I've done a little bit of everything from Greek tragedy to improv to Woody Allen to Shakespeare, and I've done a lot of it over 200 productions, many of them full length or longer. I never would have had that opportunity as a stage of film director. There's, but I, but this is one of the things that, that keeps me doing this over the years, despite the fact that there is no money and no glory in audio drama. Anyway, you asked about how we pick the, these things out. Some of it is serendipity, like Maltese Falcon. And some of it, some of it comes from the publisher. They see something that they think might be good uh, for them, and they'll uh, ask me to do it for them. For instance, there, uh, Tim Burton's version of Sweeney Todd was was announced as being in production, and they, my publisher called me and said would you be willing to do Sweeney Todd? And I said, well, which version? They weren't even aware that there's more than one. And they said, well, you pick one. So I wrote a new one. Uh, Rather than doing what uh, Tim Burton was doing, I wrote a new version uh, based on the actual, the first version, the, the Penny Dreadful, which was called the String of Pearls that came out in the 1840s. And I rewrote it with a sense of humor. Uh, <laughs> what else? When you look at that material, what else can you do with it? So this turned out to win three Audis. But when it came, so it comes from various sources. This one, the, the thing I'm working on now, was another bit of serendipity. A guy named Daryl McCullough, who lives in uh, Portland, uh, Oregon, called me up asking me if I could um, recommend somebody to do Foley. He had uh, written. Uh, Zorro radio script that he wanted to do with the cast of the New World Zorro that came out in the 1990s, that TV series that, that was on cable. And this was his dream. Now, he was he's just an, uh, a fan. So I gave him a recommendation, but then I started asking him, uh, what are your plans? What do you want to do? And in the course of this, he he says, well, I'd like to do something really special, la-di-da. And I'm, 
he said, why don't you do it? He said, well, I can't do that. I got to do something my uh, publisher will uh, want to put out. Now, Zorro is probably going to be very commercial for him. Why don't we decided we would do the first Zorro novel, The Mark of Zorro. It's in the public domain. And my publisher went for it. We, to do a, a, a professional production of The, the Mark of Zorro, because he thought that that there would be um, these umpteen umpteen Zorro fans who would just die to get their hands on it. So, and in fact, it turns out that the guys who control the rights to the name Zorro were keen on this too. They had just given the rights to an amateur group who put their own Zorro production together, which they thought was kind of sorry. So when they saw that uh, a guy with my credits, they didn't know me from Adam, but they looked at they looked at the award, you know, the long list of awards, and they said, "Oh boy, well maybe we'll get this done, get something really interesting done." And so that's what. So they were entirely cooperative, and allowed me to do follow in a long tradition of adapting this novel. This novel has been filmed three times. Once as a silent, once in the 40s as a, a, a vehicle for, geez, I can't remember who played Zorro in that damn thing. And then once for television. And in all three versions of The Mark of Zorro, nobody paid much attention to the story the original story. And they changed a lot of it. And the basic premise was there that here was this masked Avenger in old California, and he does all these things uh, that are good and nice and fights all the bad guys and eventually uh, unmasks himself. And we find out that he is the Don Diego uh, Vega, the, the ne'er-do-well uh, Hildago. Hildago, I guess, is how you pronounce it. So following that tradition, I paid no attention to the story whatsoever, except for the general outline, and wrote uh, a script that is funnier and has more, more daring do in action. Yeah, and, and it's funny, um, to, to, as well with the, with the audio format, um, of course, you can do such wondrous things, uh, you know, go go to outer space or um, transport through time. Um, action scenes are tough, uh, I, I would say. Do, do you want to talk a little bit about that? I'd be curious from a production standpoint. Yeah, yeah. I was thinking the the actors who've read it and the, uh, the guys who control the rights think the script is a hell of a lot of fun. It's supposed to be. And... But not for me. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, the script was fun to write, but and it'll be fun with to work on it with actors. But after the actors go home, I have a month or more of post production to do on it. Careful post production, because it's important that 
the stuff be not only convincing, but not particularly overwhelming. Well, that, yeah. So I'm 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 really looking forward to that. And do you have any idea when this is uh when when you when you plan on releasing it at this point? No, it's not up to me to pick a date for release. It's up to the publisher. But my, yeah, it's every all, every part is cast except for the lead. Yeah, so it's it's a process. <laughs> it's a process, and it's a damn nice one. Yeah. Uh, Awesome. Well, if, if we could take a moment to t- take the long view, Yuri, um, I would really be curious to know, uh, you, you mentioned earlier that, you know, in radio drama, there's no money and not a lot of <laughs> glory. Um, but but what what has been your experience looking back um, and, 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 you know, audio's place in our consciousness um, then and now and, and sort of in between? You know, there was a day when... Radio was not only important in the, in the United States. It was what television has been become. But it was in, but in Great Britain, it was a matter of life and death during the Battle of Britain for the BBC to be there. It was an essential part of the life of the people over there, and was for news and for sucker. Radio was important here for news, but uh, it did not have the same relationship to the to the American people that the British radio had. But radio drama was 99 and 99 100% of what was on American radio and British radio in those days. And then it's still... In the age of TV, commercial radio didn't stop putting radio plays together until 1962, I think, was the last time uh, The Shadow was broadcast. And that was the last uh, radio play series on commercial radio. And since then, the people who run public broadcasting, who are now the the people that you have to go to to get on the air, have no belief in radio drama. They don't, none of them have uh, formats in, for which radio drama is comfortable. Some are all talk stations, but still, that's news and public affairs uh, for the most part. Nonetheless, publishing has made new things possible for the radio dramatist and for his audience, or his or her audience. Because we're not only published uh, in uh, physical media, cassettes and CDs, but we're on the Internet. We're downloadable. What now, it becomes economically feasible for our audience to patronize us because without the needing to buy recording tape, uh, cassette shells, CDs, and the packaging stuff, it's now reasonably priced to do for audiobooks and audio drama as for, on these downloads. And now the technology is coming out for uh, this stuff to be on apps. 
my publisher has got their own app. And they, I think they were the they were one of the first or second, the first independent publisher to to do that. So we have an opportunity to get back to an audience, and it's always been my contention that what I've wanted in this business was not only to do good work. I wanted the stuff to be worth listening to and not a waste of time, but also to get it in front of an audience. I want, that was the problem with uh, public radio is they didn't have an audience. So how was I going to get an audience being on their stations? We, uh, but now with the publishing, it's, it's, it's much different. It's now permanent media. This could stuff could be floating around the airwaves uh, on the internet for God knows how long, and CDs last forever. And it's because that we so involve the listener to make that listener invent all the missing sights and smells and of of uh, the production. It's as intimate a medium as you can get. Well, awesome. Well, thank you so much, Yuri. Thank you for your time. Thank you for talking about your work and you know giving us just some perspective on on you know where audio is, what its value, and and where it's going a little bit. Okay, it was a pleasure. Awesome. All right. Thanks so much. Sure. That was Yuri Rosovsky, one of the greatest living audio dramatists. Quite a remarkable guy. And uh, before we close, just I couldn't help but put in one more little tasty snack of audio drama from Beyond Two Thousand. Uh, this is one penned by aforementioned Yuri, a tongue-in-cheek piece called The Survey. I uh, hope you enjoy. Ma'am. Hmm? Excuse me, ma'am. Oh! Oh! I didn't see you there. Oh, my! Is it Halloween already? I'm totally unprepared. Oh, gee, let me go in and, and see what kind of goodies uh, I can uh, rustle uh, up in no, the No, 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 ma'am, please don't bother. I'm not a kid in a costume. I'm an I'm a real alien from outer space, oh. and uh, I'm taking a survey. Alien. Would you mind answering a few questions for me? A survey? Well, gee, no, I'd be, I'd be delighted. Uh, come on in now. No, no, that's come on okay, in the house. ma'am. We can do it right here on your front porch. Really? Oh, but uh, uh, let me make you a little tea or offer you a piece of homemade oh, pie no, no, or something. Oh, no, don't bother. Thanks, thanks. But, uh, you stay right. Don't bother yourself. You don't have to get up. We space aliens don't indulge. Oh, 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 I didn't know that. Mm. But, um, but you're sure now. It's awfully good. Sure, I just needed sure. this morning. All right. Um, well, then, uh, you wouldn't mind if I uh, if I just keep knitting here while we're talking? Oh, oh right ahead. Thank this you. won't take long. Oh, well, then. Uh, now, what was it you wanted to ask me? Well, let's see now. Um, could you uh, just tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah. Uh, your core belief system and how you implement that system. Oh, really? Gee. And, uh, speak right here up into this uh, herpa tuffle here. Uh, mm, sure. Mm. Uh, like, like this? Is, 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 is this all right? You don't, you, don't, you, you don't have to shout. It, oh. It'll pick you up fine, but you're just fine now. Oh, all right. Okay, just go right ahead. And, uh, I just talk in my normal voice. Right then. All right. Um, Start with your name. Uh, sure. <laughs> this is exciting. My name is uh, Fanny Billingsgate. I'm 
87 years old last month. Uh, I am a widow and I've lived in Springfield here right in this town all my life. I have four children all living, thank the Lord, eight grandchildren and two lovely great-grandchildren, one on the way. <laughs> my late husband, God love him, Roger, and I also adopted and raised a total of 42 orphans, many of whom still correspond with me. Uh, Social Security doesn't provide enough for me to continue that, but I do volunteer at the Red Cross over to the library and, um, oh, the VA hospital, too. (laughs) Can't forget that one. You see, I believe that God put us on this earth to help one another. That's what I believe. Whether it's white, black, yellow, or brown. Oh, (laughs) or green. We are all God's children. That's what I believe. Made in his image and deserving of care and compassion. God always provided for Roger and me, and we have always shared his bounty and tried in our small way to make the world a better place to live. Mm, Let's see what else. Well, I still keep up with current events. Um, I vote every election without fail, rain or shine. I write my congressman regularly. And I participate in community activities as much as I can, of course. Naturally, I go to church every Sunday. Support the symphony and art museum. Um, Oh, I give to the United Way. Belong to the Neighborhood Watch. I buy Christmas seals. I love to read. Oh, I read voraciously, even though my eyes aren't what they used to be. (laughs) I love to work out over at the center twice a week. Uh, Maintain a vegetarian diet. Uh, Of course, I never drink nor smoke. I uh, am an organ donor. I subscribe to Consumers Reports. Uh, Support my local public radio station. Uh brush and floss after every meal. Thank I you, have ma'am. a garden Thank, and I grow... Hmm? Ma'am. Thank you. I think that's all I need. Oh, well. Uh, could you tell me what is this survey for? Oh. Well, we space aliens uh, monitor the human race periodically. You do? Oh, yes. With your advancing technology, you will soon be joining the universal community of intelligent life. So we come now and then to check out if you are worthy. Because we wouldn't want humanity's taste for war and strife to spread. No, you know no we wouldn't want that. No. But so long as we are able to find good folk like you on this planet, yeah. we refrain from destroying it. Oh, my word. So, Mrs. Billingsgate? Yes. Congratulations. What? You have saved your species from extermination. Oh, that's nice. Uh, good day now, ma'am. Uh, drive carefully. Toodaloo.
He's gone. Okay, people. That's a wrap. We've saved the earth. We can go home now. Where the heck is my cell phone? I gotta call my agent. Chief, whiz. You have just heard Janet Carroll and Ira Burton in The Survey by Yuri Rosovsky. Okay, and that wraps up this multi-packed audio drama episode today featuring Beyond 2000 and Yuri Rosovsky. Yum. Yum, 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 yum. Good stuff. Um, I should also mention that Yuri has given us permission to rebroadcast his spectacular rendering of Sweeney Todd and the String of Pearls, courtesy of Blackstone Audiobooks. That will be gracing our ears sometime in the early fall. Uh, don't miss it. Wonderful work. And uh, you'll get to listen to it here on Radio Drum Revival. Uh, next week, we zip off to West Plains, Missouri for some audio camp with the National Audio Theater Festivals, hearing some of their produced works from um, that yearly gathering. Uh, in the meantime, of course, though, you can find news, reviews, and discussion up at radiodramarevival.com, though you can also find us on social networks nowadays. You can follow us on Twitter at Radiodrama, and you can also find us on Facebook or iTunes. Search Radio Drama Revival. That wraps it up for this week. Radio Drama Revival is produced by yours truly, Fred Greenhalge. Copyright of individual shows remains their original producers, but do please share this show as far and widely as you like. Radio Drama Revival originates in on-air radio at WMPG-FM, Greater Portland, Maine's community radio. It is podcast at radiodramarevival.com as labor love. Till next time, keep your mind and your ears open. Thanks for tuning in and have a great week. ¶¶